Welcome to the 226th episode of the 4th and 24 podcast with Patrick Winograd. I'm your host, Randy Winograd. In this edition of the podcast, our topics are an overview of Patrick's weekend predictions, our look at week two of college football and week one of the NFL, and our weekly review of Major League Baseball action. Let's jump right in with a look back at Patrick's weekend predictions, which are posted every Thursday on our website, 4thand24.com. Starting in Major League Baseball, Patrick went 3-1 and one with his weekend series predictions. Moving over to football in the NFL, Patrick went 2-2, two and two, and in college football, he went 1-3. and three. And then as we move over to the U.S. Open on the ATP Tour, Patrick went 1-1 one and one with his predictions for men's tennis. And on the WTA Tour, Patrick went 2-0 and oh with his women's tennis predictions at the U.S. Open. That brings Patrick to a 9-7 and seven combined record for this past weekend, which translates to a 797 and 532 overall record, a 60.0 winning percentage. Patrick, your thoughts on your rather robust weekend predictions? Well, I'd like to view it as uh, if I was a uh, NFL team in the last two, not in the last, not in this year or the year prior because they've changed the format and it's now 17 games. But um, in years prior, there were 16 games, and I like to view it as would I make the playoffs with that record this week? I would be a potential wild card contender, maybe win a weak division, and in the AFC a few years ago, definitely wouldn't make the playoffs. So I will say, not not exactly happy, not exactly dissatisfied is my verdict on the weekend predictions this week. Um, overall, I thought college football was just a very interesting week. I thought, I, I honestly think there were probably, I would say, 11 predictable games, in my opinion. Um, games that had close, you know, 8, 10, eight to 10 point lines with you know, low-ranked teams against uh, barely-out-of-the-pole teams or those teams going on the road. You look at an Iowa-Iowa State that I didn't predict. Those types of games were kind of everywhere. The one I got right was number 10 Notre Dame going on the road and beating NC State 45-24, to which, despite the ranking disparity, was actually one of the closer lines of the weekend. Then I did not predict that Michael Pratt would be out for uh, Tulane, and Ole Miss went on the road and beat number 24 Tulane, although Tulane had control for most of the game uh, took Ole Miss scoring 20 unanswered points for them to actually take their first lead of the game that was late in the third quarter. Um, and really, they were only two or three plays away from actually losing that game or at least having a much different outcome. And the 17-point differential at the end was not indicative of how close the game was. Ole Miss got, a few, got one scoop and score touchdown that they probably shouldn't have scored and then a field goal that was supposed to be the the score that sealed the game that was really when they were running out the clock after Tulane had already kicked an onside kick. So, I mean, not not exactly as uh, as big of a blowout as it could have been. Tulane was only down by seven with two minutes left, so not really that big of a blowout, but on paper it looks like it at the end. Um, but regardless, that is how it turned out. Um, and then Miami beat number 23, Texas A&M, 48-33. Um, and number 11, Texas went on the road and beat number three, Alabama, 34 to 24. That one, I definitely wouldn't have flipped no matter what. There was nothing that was going to make me pick Alabama and, or, or sorry, pick Texas instead of Alabama. Maybe in a, di- I mean, I went back and forth on Miami and Texas A&M. Honestly, I wasn't too convinced on Texas A&M. I thought Connor Wagman played great week one, but I didn't know if that was going to continue or not. So I wasn't really that sold on them. I, I wasn't that high on them preseason. I didn't even have them ranked in our first preseason poll. So I wasn't super, super high on Texas A&M, and I could have picked, you know, a different game like an Oregon-Texas Tech, and maybe I would have picked Oregon, but again, I don't really know what I would have picked. So that, this week was really just a lot of different predictable games, a lot of hard, uh, a lot of hard decisions to make, 
Um, the only game I would have confidently said that I would have predicted right is Nebraska against Colorado, but I felt that the three-point line that was put on that game was really unfair to Colorado, <laughs> that they were supposed to have a close game with Nebraska, and that's actually the reason why I didn't predict it, because I thought it's a little too obvious, despite the fact that Vegas didn't think so. Um, so that one I would have won with Colorado. But anyway, going back up to MLB, the Twins took two of three from the Mets, the Brewers took two of three from the Yankees, and the Orioles took two of three from the Red Sox. I breezed through those series because all of those series were over before Sunday. Um, every team had won the first two. And, you know, at this point in the year, it is really, really hard to sweep any team, even if you're playing a team like the Yankees, the Yankees who are out of playoff, uh, really, consideration. The Mets, same kind of story. And the Red Sox, maybe a little bit deflated after losing those first two to the Orioles. But the fact of the matter is, for them to stay in the race, they got to win games against teams that are that good. So it's kind of the same... It's just kind of the same principle that it is everywhere. You just can't sweep teams this late in the year. Um, and then the Marlins took two or three from the Phillies. That series came down to Sunday. Uh, did not quite go my way. Interestingly enough, I thought it was going my way. Ranger Suarez had a no-hitter, I believe, through six and two-thirds innings in that game. But the Marlins actually came back and won, uh, beating the Phillies, who had a 3-0 lead and a no-hitter because they scored three three runs in that inning, actually. Or I think four runs in that inning right after Suarez gave up his no-hitter. Um, and that is how they won that series, or won that game, and then eventually won that series uh, through that victory. But 3-1 and one is pretty good. Kind of flipped the script in MLB and college football. Normally college football is my better uh, league, and MLB is my worst league out of the two. And then in the NFL, I picked the Chiefs to win, despite the fact that Travis Kelsey wasn't going to be there, uh, nor was Chris Jones. They ended up being wrong. The Lions proved how legit they are. I mean, I, I'm I'm honestly not that surprised they won the game, but it was a close game. It was a good game. We'll talk about it more later. Um, the Lions won that game. I got that wrong. The Browns beat the Bengals. That makes Joe Burrow 1-5 in his career against the Browns. That is something that I had actually seen and considered when predicting it, but I was like, if anything, that gives me more confidence that he's going to beat them because he's lost to some not very good Browns teams. This would be the time to actually take them seriously and make sure that he gets the win, but... Some rainy conditions there. Burrow had actually the worst statistical game of his career. Um, and we'll talk about that also later. Um, and then the Eagles beat the Patriots 25-20. to Eagles jumped out early to, I think, a 16 to nothing lead. And the Patriots ended up coming back to make it close. But still a win for the Eagles, which I got right. And then the Cowboys just hammered the Giants 40 to nothing. Well, I have a lot to say about that one later. Um, but yeah, that game, not very close. 40 to nothing. Cowboys won that one. And then in tennis... Both of the, I, I predicted three games correctly out of the four. The one I predicted right on the men's side was Djokovic beating Shelton um, in the semis. Djokovic obviously would go on to win the U.S. Open um, and claim his 24th title of all time, which ties him with Margaret Court for the most of all time by any player and puts him ahead of Serena Williams, who he was previously tied with for second. And then in WTA, Coco Goff on the other end of uh, how many titles have you won all time, won her very first title after beating uh, Carolina Muhova in the semifinals and then beating Arena Sabalenka in the finals. Both of those I had getting, both of those players I had getting to the finals. And if I had made a finals pick, although obviously I couldn't have done that because I didn't even know the matchup at the time, but if I had made a finals pick, I would have picked those two. So I'm very happy with that. Um, although Daniil Medvedev also deserves a, a lot of credit for going through a really tough draw and making it all the way to the finals. Something very, very hard to do. Um, but overall, a great U.S. Open. I will be back for the next major, but that won't be for a while at this point, I don't think. But overall, a decent week of predictions could have been a little bit better. And those titles you were speaking about, as you just clarified, were major titles. Yeah, first major. Not, Excuse not me. Yeah. 
All right, well, Patrick's predictions for next weekend will be posted on our website on Thursday. Let's turn our attention to college football, starting with the best games of week two. Well, I will start with UCF and Boise State, a game that maybe, you know, the, the masses weren't exactly paying attention to. I think, uh, I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I think like 99% of the media coverage this week was about Deion Sanders in Colorado, and honestly, rightfully so. Uh, that is what that was about. Um, but the fact of the matter is this game didn't get any attention at all, didn't get any buzz. Boise State, people forget, we talked about them having the schedule, having a really tough schedule, I will add, but... Having some games that, you know, you start out the season by beating Washington on the road somehow, and all of a sudden, you got a lot of momentum going into some winnable games against good teams. Unfortunately, they end up losing that first game to Washington, get hammered, and instead, this game against UCF, they lose on a walk-off field goal. This really could have been a big, big win for Boise State. Um, it's, a t- it's a matchup that a few years ago would be one that would... A few years ago, I mean, literally last year, would be a matchup that could potentially decide who's the group of five representative in the New Year's Six Bowl. This year, it has nothing to do with that because UCF is in the Big 12, and that won't mean anything. Although maybe it helps them get a Sugar Bowl, Sugar Bowl, uh, or be the Sugar Bowl rep. Who knows? Um, but UCF, honestly, off to a good start this season. I considered ranking them in our poll tomorrow. I don't know if I actually landed. I think I landed on leaving them just on the wrong side of that. But they are very close to a top 25 team. Uh, and the way the Big 12 is looking, they look like they can be kind of a shocker in that conference and win some games. And who I am referring to in terms of they could win some games are these next two teams. Because while UCF is 2-0, two teams from the state of Texas also played great games this weekend, but they're both 0-2. That, of course, being Texas Tech, who lost at home 38-30 to to number 13 Oregon. This was the Tyler Shuck revenge game. Uh, he was forced out of Oregon because he, frankly, didn't really play well when he was there. Um, at the end of the 2020 season, and Oregon decided that they were going to move to the transfer portal and get a different quarterback, or excuse me, the 2021 season, um, and they moved to the transfer portal, got a better quarterback, that being Bo Nix. He's been there last year. He is there this year. Bo Nix went on the road, beat Tyler Shuck in his own building at Texas Tech. Uh, Shuck was 6-0 and as a starter going into the season um, for Texas Tech, but now he's 0-2 in his second season, so... Yes, they turned him at the right time last year to end up making a bowl game, carry a lot of momentum into this year after beating Ole Miss in that bowl game, but uh, no carryover so far from last year's bowl game win now to this year as they lose this game after being outscored 20-3 to in the fourth quarter, um, and that puts them at 0-2 on the season after they lost week one to Wyoming. And then, second of all, Baylor, in the battle of the backup quarterbacks at Baylor, lost to number 12 Utah 20-13. Baylor's defense absolutely dominated this entire game. And then they didn't play the fourth quarter. They didn't finish the game out. Although a lot of that was their offense's fault. Um, Utah was down 10 to three at the half. At the end of the third quarter, they were down 13 to six. Really thought that um, I looked at that game and I said, well, glad I didn't predict it because I would have picked Utah and they would have lost. And then all of a sudden, Baylor, Utah scores their first touchdown of the game on the offensive end to make it 13 to 13. And then Baylor, inexplicably, with about a minute and a half, two minutes left, throws a pick in their own territory. Sawyer Robertson, I guess that's the reason he was the backup at the beginning of the year, threw an interception. Uh, Utah converted it eventually into a touchdown to go up 20-13. to And look, Utah just sent a pretty big statement to the rest of the country. Cam Rising is really the heart of their team. Um, and Brent Keithy, too. I don't know if he had a big role in this game. I would assume he really didn't because Bryson Barnes was the one throwing to him, not Cam Rising. But... Keithy didn't play the first game against Florida. They hammered Florida at home. Uh, Then they go on the road 
and they beat Baylor. They have beaten two Power 5 teams. They might be the only team so far that's beaten two Power 5 teams, I think. I can't really think of anybody else who's played two Power 5 teams this season, um, but if there is one, I'm, I'm sorry to that team for not... Oh, yeah, there is one. I'm about to talk about them in a second, actually. I, I just thought about who it is. But anyway, um, I'm, it's Colorado. But Utah has done this now without a, without their starting quarterback. Cam Rising is going to make this team significantly better, and already they're good enough to beat middle-of-the-pack Big 12 team on the road, an arguably middle-of-the-pack SEC team at home. I don't think Florida's that good, but some people seem to think that they're due, so I am seem to think that they are, so I'm going to use that argument against those people. I'm calling Florida middle-of-the-pack SEC, and I'm saying that Utah is good enough to beat middle-of-the-pack teams in multiple conferences. And really, those two conference, those two wins by Oregon and Utah again, on the road against those uh, t- state of Texas teams, it's proving an overall narrative this season that we talked about over the weekend, obviously, off podcast. The Pac-12 might be the best conference in the country this year because the biggest win so far has come from the Big 12 beating uh, the SEC, obviously that being... Alabama losing to Texas, and we'll get to that one later, but the Pac-12 has had their fair share of upsets, and elsewhere in both of those conferences, the Big 12 and the SEC, A, the Pac-12 has owned those matchups when they played those teams, like we're talking about this weekend, and B, they've had some really bad losses around kind of the rest of the conference. The Pac-12 has not really had any losses at all. Uh, I mean, and we'll talk about it more later, but really the only losses, the Pac-12 did start out the season 18-0, and their only losses this weekend were an overtime loss by Arizona, who's at the very bottom of the conference now, arguably, to Mississippi State, who is a middle-of-the-pack SEC team, in double overtime. And then also that loss by Arizona State to Oklahoma State, also one of the worst teams in the Pac-12. And then Stanford got hammered by USC, but that's a conference loss anyway. So and Pac-12, and then Cal, Cal lost. barely lost to Auburn because they missed yeah. a few field goals. So the Pac-12 is looking really good. That's all I can say about that, but... Uh, we can talk about other things that are more impressive right now, too. How about the most impressive teams of Week 2? Yes, that is what I was referring to, and we will start None with... None of them from the Pac-12. There is one from the Pac-12. What are you talking about? Oh, that's right. I forgot. I keep thinking they're in the Big 12 already. Well, that would make no teams in the Pac-12, pretty much. But, I mean, <laughs> look, <true>. Notre, Dame, <laughs> Notre Dame is the first team on this list. They're not in any conference. Maybe that confused you. Number 10 in the country beat NC State 45-24. to I just think it's impressive that this team had a lead, and they come out of a rain delay. And the very first play from scrimmage after a rain delay is a 75-yard touchdown run on a simple draw play up the middle to Audric Estime. I mean, look, this team is just really good. I I really don't, I I can't put it any other way. I really think that with what I've seen this season from Ohio State, not from USC, but from Ohio State, Notre Dame might actually sneak their way into the playoff this year because Alabama— does not look like a playoff team at all. LSU is already LSU's not going to make the playoff either because, well, I'll put it this way. LSU and Alabama have both taken non-conference losses. The loser of their game against each other can't make the playoff. So that's one team eliminated. I don't really think the winner of that game is a good shot either because I think they're going to lose to Georgia. I don't think Tennessee's look particularly good. So you might be looking at, you know, other than Georgia, I don't think it's two SEC teams. I'll just put it that way. I don't think it's two SEC teams. The way Ohio State has looked this season, I don't think it's two Big Ten teams either. That's leaving a lot of room open. And when you look at how much Pac-12 teams might beat up on each other, if Notre Dame is able to slip a win over, and by the way, Notre Dame's game against Clemson doesn't look like a challenging game at all right now for them. I mean, they will clearly have the quarterback advantage, the running back advantage. Well, the running back's a little closer, but overall they're going to be a lot better, a, a way better team than Clemson. Um, I'm just looking at it for Notre Dame, and from from what they show shown to me this weekend... I don't really see 
I, I don't really see a world in which they won't at least be a major player in the playoff conversation. Um, I really do see the potential. I don't think they. I do, I do still think that USC will beat them. Honestly, that is my one. That's my one thing with Notre Dame. I do think USC still has the edge over them. But the way Ohio State has looked this season, I wouldn't be surprised at all if Notre Dame beat them. Um, Ohio State has not looked good enough to beat a team like Notre Dame, who has an experienced quarterback and a very very good experienced quarterback right now. Hartman's looking like a Heisman contender again. Um, but the fact of the matter is. They're a really balanced team. Their offense is good. Their defense is pretty good. Um, running and passing game, they definitely can exchange within those two pretty easily. So that's a really, really solid team. And I don't think that Clemson game is going to be a trip-up game for them anymore. I don't think Louisville has looked that good. Many of their potential losses, they already went through one of them this game at NC State. Many of their potential losses don't look nearly as hard as they did at the beginning of the season. That's all I'm trying to say with Notre Dame. So I could really see them um, coming up and making an impact. And then in terms of making another impact, how about the new teams from the American going in the Big 12? UCF got their win over Boise State. Cincinnati went on the road. They beat Pitt 27-21, to uh, weakening that whole ACC's really good narrative, too, which is also the reason why I've landed on the Pac-12 as the best conference so far. Um, but Cincy, this is a good win for them. I, I don't think this was supposed to be a year where they were going to be very good to most people, especially because they lost Luke Fickle. The idea was that you know, they lost their coach. They lost a lot of production. Ben Bryant transferred out. They were replacing a quarterback. Um, th- there just wasn't an implication that Cincinnati was going to be any good this year, and they've kind of flipped that on their head. This win, very, very impressive. And mind you, they won 27-21, to but they were up 27-7 to going in the fourth quarter. So it didn't really look like Pitt even had a chance in this game. They barely clawed their way back into it at the end. But Cincy looking really good. And then a reason to devalue the Big Ten. Well, I have two of them. Um, and they're both coming from the worst division in Power 5 football. That has always been this way. Kansas beat Illinois 34-23. to I was impressed because Kansas had to start Jason Bean due to Jalen Daniels' neck or, I think, neck or back injury. I think it was a back injury um, that he had sustained last year and was kind of playing through and then gutted through it and then kind of was dealing with it in the offseason a lot. Um, Daniels ended up coming back in this game, and offensively, Kansas was just lights out all night long. Uh, defensively, Kansas had some really good plays. They shut down Illinois for the first half. It was 28 to seven at the half. And while in the end, it did look a little bit closer. It was still a double digit win by Kansas in a power five game, which I think was pretty impressive from them. Um, so I'm impressed with Kansas, how they played offensively this weekend. I think their defense can close out the game a little bit better, but I think a lot of that was, you know, not being as aggressive, not firing off as much on Luke Altmaier, knowing that they had that lead to protect and they didn't need to just speed up the game for him as long as they sat in kind of a safe zone and played more bend, don't break. They weren't going to lose the game, and that's exactly what they did. Illinois got a touchdown in each quarter after the first, but they were already down by too much to come back and take the win. And then you have Colorado against Nebraska. Jeff Sims making his push for the worst Power 5 quarterback. I don't like to rag on particular players, but I do have to say it's not his fault. It is the coaching staff's fault. Why in the world, if you're Nebraska... Do you take Casey Thompson, who was arguably the best player on their team last year, maybe outside of a few guys who ended up in the NFL and maybe Ernest Hausman, who ended up transferring out to Michigan, why do you take him and you say, hmm, I know what will fix this team better with a new quarterback, with a new coach. Let's go get Georgia Tech's quarterback. He'll pass better in a, in a Matt Rule offense. That'll make a lot of sense. No, it doesn't work at all. Jeff Sims has had four turnovers in the first six quarters. Sorry, four turnovers in the first six quarters of the season for Nebraska. If he, I'm not going to lie, I don't like to, again, I don't like to rag on specific players, but 
if any average quarterback was at the helm for Nebraska, I don't think they would have beaten Colorado, but they would at least be they one and but but they at least would have been one and one with a close road loss at the very very least because the fact of the matter is Colorado had no offensive rhythm in this game and the thing that set them up were Nebraska the things I should say that set them up were Nebraska turnovers. Nebraska missed a field goal and then they also threw an interception. That interception turned in one play later to Colorado's first touchdown of the game. Colorado was only up three to nothing at the time, middle of the second quarter, and all of a sudden, that just sprung, it just sprung an onslaught from Colorado's offense. Shift. And that momentum shift was the thing that propelled Colorado to really get the momentum rolling, up thirteen to nothing at the half. And that at that point, that was kind of a foregone conclusion who was going to win that game. All right. Well, let's move on to the biggest upsets of week two. Well, that is the old Big Twelve, or actually a really old old Big Twelve matchup between two Big Twelve teams, and then now one new Big 12 team. Let's move on to the current Big 12 and then what will be a new SEC matchup. Texas went on the road, beat Alabama 34-24. This game to me looked exactly like the Alabama-LSU game of last year, except for with the roles reversed. Alabama, well actually, not even with the roles reversed. Um, No, yeah, with the roles reversed, except for the result didn't flip. Alabama last year lost to LSU because they missed a bunch of opportunities and kicked way too many field goals. Texas in this game missed opportunities, and kicked field goals in situations where they probably should have scored some touchdowns. And that's the reason why they're not on most impressive teams and they're on biggest upsets instead. I really think Texas could have done a lot more in this game to put this game away and not have it be as nervous. They still should get a lot of credit for the win. But if anything, what this game told me is that Alabama just isn't the Alabama of past. I mean, I think... I said before the year that I was ready to jump ship on Clemson because of the fact that it was really a run of six years and and everything before that, and then now the few years since that, three losses each. I, I wasn't very strong on them in terms of having Cade Klubnik as the quarterback, and, and just, you know, I still had them as a top eight team, but, I mean, when you look at who dominated the playoff era, it was Alabama and Clemson, so the fact that there was still, they were at five and eight is still a big, big difference from it what it was in the past. It used to be that every year they'd enter the year one and two. And if they weren't one or two, one of them was one and the other one was three. And, you know, maybe Georgia or Ohio State snuck their way into the number two spot or even Oklahoma in a, in a certain year. But look, Alabama and Clemson, both of them, they're not up to their previous standards. This Alabama team led by Jalen Milrow, look, Milrow just isn't, I said this before the season, and actually I went back and we played the podcast clip I thought they were going to start Tyler Buckner over Jalen Milrow because of what I had seen last year. I thought there is no way Alabama is rolling into a season with Jalen Milrow as the starting quarterback because he's not good enough to lead a top five team. I thought that's why Buckner transferred in. He didn't win the job, which tells you he didn't do very much in camp to impress the staff. And frankly, based on his tape last year and based on what Notre Dame looks like with worse weapons all around, I'm not very surprised that... um, Bookner wasn't that impressive because that team could have been a playoff team last year if they had a better quarterback. But look, Alabama is a quarterback away from being a near playoff contender, but I don't even think the rest of their roster is good enough to be a playoff contender. Their offensive line didn't give Milrow much of a chance to really impact the game. Most of his plays were scrambling a lot, and it wasn't really scrambling because he was panicking and leaving the pocket early. He was leaving the pocket because he had to leave the pocket. There wasn't any room for him to for for him to throw. He couldn't really be a pocket passer. And yes, he is better on the run, but he didn't. He shouldn't have been on the run as much as he was. Uh, really just not a great performance all around by Alabama. Even their defense deserves some blame for that. But overall, Texas also deserves a lot of credit for pulling off that upset. It's a very, very hard place to win. Not a place that anybody can go into and win easily. 
And Steve Sarkeesian is one of the first assistants to actually dethrone Saban. I mean, it took Kirby Smart like eight or nine attempts to beat him once, and although he's now beaten him twice since then, look, it's a hard thing to do to beat Saban. Um, And Sarkeesian has pulled that off. And by the way, even last year when Texas was significantly worse than Alabama, they probably should have won that game too. So frankly, Texas could have gone 2-0 against Alabama. A pretty good sign for them heading into the SEC next year. Yeah. Uh, the other good sign is that, like you said, the talent gap didn't appear to be there. Actually, Texas looked like the more Texas was the most Texas the Texas overall was the more talented yeah, team. I mean, it's trenches, just which is, could have been why that Texas D line is probably why Alabama's O line didn't look so good. All right, uh, let's let's move over to the next upset of the week um, involving your favorite conference. Well, this one is the one of the only two members left of the current and new Pac-12. It's Washington State. They pulled off the upset. I talked about Luke Fickle departing Cincinnati earlier. Here's what his former team. Here's what his new team is up to. They lost 31 to 22. Number 19 Wisconsin did to Washington State on the road. Washington State vaulting into the AP poll as a result, barely making the end of my my poll as a result. I, I don't drop teams very often for winning games, but I watched Wisconsin against Buffalo Week One, and I said there is no way that team is top 20. They might beat Washington State, but they are not that good. We took them. I dropped them four spots down. For winning a game. That is very weird and very random to have that happen. And it wasn't really just because of teams all around them. I mean, I gave no, Oregon State... look good. No, they looked horrible. They're just like Clemson. I mean, I said to you, even if Clemson pulled out that win at Duke, I was going to drop them anyway. They looked bad. So, we dropped them in the poll. Still didn't put them out because I don't really think it's fair to drop a team six or seven spots after they still won a game by 21. But... It just didn't look like anything was in sync, and it looks like they're a team breaking in a new coach and a new and a new court, uh, quarterback. That's just what it looks like, and it's early in the season. Washington State, on the other hand, same coach, same quarterback, same really a lot of things for them, and as a result, Washington State took that experience advantage, got some help from a fumble call that probably wasn't really a fumble, um, and then in the end, had enough points to win the game. Defense played well enough, forced enough turnovers, regardless of whether one of them or should have been a turnover or not. Um, but Washington State deserves all the credit in that world, in the world for that win as well. Yeah, and you talk about the experienced quarterback play of Washington State. That's what makes the Pac-12 so much better than every other conference is the amount of returning quarterbacks and the talent at that position. I think, and and in Colorado's case, new talent coming in. So there's a very very strong argument that the top six quarterbacks in the country are all in the Pac-12. So and maybe six of the top ten for sure, and maybe eight of the top fifteen. But uh, it's 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 a really really loaded quarter. I think you might just take the top six. I mean, I, I think there are a few there are a few there are a few candidates in other conferences. JJ McCarthy being one Thank of them. You. But look, Shadur Sanders has a 903 passing yards. He's outpassed Michael Penix in the first two games, which is something I don't think anybody had happening. Then you have Bo Nix. Then you keep going down the list. I'm not going to because it's too long. Obviously, Caleb Williams is the very top of that list and in the category of his own. I think other than Jordan Travis and J.J. McCarthy, though, if you look across the board and Sam Hartman, across, other than those three teams, that's what I, I don't think you about. can throw anybody else in the conversation no, with those Pac-12 teams. About. That's what I was talking about. And DJU looks pretty no, good, no, too. No, Quinn, Ewers <laughs> look, Quinn Ewers looked pretty good against Alabama. So four, anyway, uh, let's just say the Pac-12 is loaded at the quarterback position, which is why the conference is so, so talented from top to bottom this year. Let's move on to your last game of the week that also is our last upset of the week. Well, this will, this game was about quarterback play as well. This is about Tyler Van Dyke having the right coordinators um, and having the right offense to succeed. Last year, he had Josh Gaddis as his coordinator. Things didn't look very good for a guy who was 
still being mocked as, you know, a first-round quarterback potentially this year after he leaves. And now this year, all of a sudden, on paper and on the field, it really, really looks like he is a first-round quarterback. Tyler Van Dyke leading that Miami offense to 48 points in their 48-33 victory over A&M. If you want to talk about what he did specifically, he had 374 yards and five touchdowns on 21 of 30 passing. Connor Wigman didn't look terrible in this game either. He was 31 for 53 with 336 yards and two touchdowns, but his two interceptions were pretty big in this game. Um, and really, an A&M team that is built a lot on defense, arguably only by talent, not by production, has the best defensive line in the country in terms of talent. They did not look like that at all. Tyler Van Dyke looked, made it look like he wasn't pressured at all by that team. And in the end, Miami carved up A&M, and they really deserved that win. I mean, putting up 48 on A&M's defense is very, very hard. It's very, very hard to do. Um, in terms of, I mean, I picked A&M to win this game. If, if you had told me that they were going to lose the game, I would have said it would, be, it would be because their offense failed to reach 20. I did not, if you had told me before the week, they were going to score 33 points. I would have said, oh, there's no way they're losing the game. But credit to Tyler Van Dyke and the Miami offense looking much improved from what was out there last year. Um, and I'm not going to give in to the Miami hype like everybody always does every year. But it is funny that now they finally have a year where they don't start the season ranked. And all of a sudden, they probably look the best they've looked in maybe four or five years. All right. Well, that wraps up our look at college football. Let's stay with football and move to the NFL with the best games of week one. I will start with the Raiders defeating the Broncos 17-16. Uh, I'm not going to lie, I didn't watch this game too closely, but I will say um, Sean Payton was one of the five head coaches to be new to their team this week. Every single one of them lost, as well as every single rookie quarterback, which is uh, interesting, but you know you know what they say, sometimes the more things change, the more they stay the same. Uh, that is the way it looked in the NFL this weekend, although... Josh McDaniels getting victories is not something that happens very often, so I guess the Raiders will take that one and be happy about that. Jimmy G looked pretty good in terms of his rapport with Devontae Adams, but outside of that, I mean, I don't think there was anything that if you were looking at this game from the perspective of a Raiders fan, you're saying, oh my God, we're going to win the division now. I mean, I, there was nothing in that game that well, said you know that Raiders to me at all. Well, yeah, but there was <laughs> nothing in that game that would have told you that. Although, on the other hand, moving on to the next game, Patriots fans, I think you can be happy with the fact that your team started this game down 16 to nothing in the first quarter against the team that went to the Super Bowl and actually fought back and kept this game close, made it to the point where you actually had two opportunities, frankly, to win the game, or at least to make it a lot closer. Kendrick Bourne, or sorry, Keishon Booty, was literally inches away with just tapping his second foot from completing a fourth, from converting, excuse me, a fourth and 11. And then the Patriots would have had Still a little bit of time, and they could have scored because they were inside of the 20 if he had made that catch. Um, so this game was really, really close all the way down to the wire. The Eagles ended up winning 25-20, to though, off of that early game start. Not too impressed with the Eagles overall, but you know what? They gutted out the win, and that's what's important. Then you have the we-don't-play-defense fest that happens annually between the Dolphins and the Chargers. Uh, both of these teams, despite, frankly, having defensive-minded head coaches, seemed like they don't have anything they don't have anything to do with defense, and they don't want anything to do with defense. Um, although I should I should say Mike McDaniels is not a he's not a defensive-minded head coach. Um, but look, the Dolphins put up 36 points on the Chargers. This was a far cry from what happened last year because you might remember this because we had uh, Tyreek Hill in one of our bigger fantasy leagues. But the Chargers shut him down last year. They were really good at keeping the middle of the field closed off to Tyreek Hill and to Jalen Waddle. 
Neither of them were really doing anything in that game, and the Chargers went on to win that game. I think it was a Monday night or a Sunday night football game. But this year, things were different. The middle of the field was wide open whenever either of them wanted to just run through it and score, frankly. Tyreek Hill had 211 reception yards. He caught, I mean, he caught a fade route for a touchdown. There was nothing that the Chargers were doing to stop him. He might be one of the shortest receivers in the league. He can't be catching a fade route against your defense. But anyway, the Chargers had a lot of stupid plays. Um, they got a pass interference. It's not being talked about because it, it didn't really didn't really impact the end of the game, technically. But they had a pass interference on a Hail Mary. And as a result, the Dolphins got a field goal at the end of the half. And by the way, they lost the game by two. So I, I'm not going to say that's what swung it because after all, there were still many points to be scored in the second half. But just dumb plays by the Chargers, a lot by the secondary. Although I will say their offense looked very, very balanced and their new look of actually running the ball, considering they have Austin Eckler, it worked out very well. Um, looking good on the Chargers and offensively, but both of these teams have a lot of things to figure out on the defensive end if they're going to really make any noise. Then you have the Saints and the Titans, the opposite of this game. Both of these teams need to figure out everything on the offensive end if they're going to do anything. Um, Derek Carr and Ryan Tannehill looked like Derek Carr and Ryan Tannehill, and that's about all I can say about it. Um, Tannehill had three interceptions. If he didn't throw three interceptions, the Titans would have won this game. Um, if he threw one touchdown in three interceptions, they also would have won this game. But instead, every single score from the Titans in this game was a field goal, and they lose 15-16 instead, despite the fact that they had five different scoring drives, even in spite of three different turnovers, five scoring drives. Yet, the Saints... Three scoring drives is all they needed because they actually learned, or sorry, four is all they needed because they actually scored a touchdown. Um, red zone production does matter. Then you have the Buccaneers and the Vikings. I mean, this was a really, really close game, really fun to watch, but I don't know how in the world you can lose to Baker Mayfield if you have Justin Jefferson and Kirk Cousins. Uh, actually, maybe I do know it's because they connected for only, I think like two, maybe 12 yards in the second half on two receptions after having, I think two receptions for 14 yards was the final number in the second half after they had seven receptions for 136 uh, at the half, that being Jefferson on that connection from Cousins. That connection was lethal all of last year. It was lethal for the first half, but kind of fell off in the second half as the Bucks and the Bucks did a really good job of defending them, and as a result, they had just enough offense to win the game. Uh, then you have the Lions beating the Chiefs. This one, is, this one was on Thursday night. I think everybody's kind of said everything there is to say about it. I'm not worried about the Chiefs long term. I don't think it means the Lions are going to destroy everybody all year long, but I think it was a good battle between two really, really good teams that will both be in the playoffs by the end of the season. Okay, well, uh, your Lions didn't make the most impressive teams of Week 1, maybe because it was a great game. So who are your most impressive teams of Week 1? Well, this was reserved for teams who absolutely beat down on the other team and, frankly, in a few of these cases, weren't even supposed to. Um, starting with the first two, where the teams definitely weren't supposed to win the game in the first place, the Rams, they went down 13-7 to to the Seahawks, they shut the Seahawks out in the second half. The Rams traded away Jalen Ramsey in the offseason. I'm not going to lie to you. Even as a Rams fan, I can barely name two or three players outside of Aaron Donald on this defense. And most of those players are players who have been on the team for a very long time. I don't know how the Seahawks are getting shut out by this. Um, that looked really bad from the Seahawks, frankly. But I'm also very impressed that the Rams got the run game going, something that they haven't done in a while, despite the fact that Cam Akers had like 20 carries for like 25 yards or something, which is ridiculous. But Kyron Williams looked good on the ground. Um, and overall, Matt Stafford being back made all the difference in the world. 
it, it really just goes to show you why quarterbacks are making $50 and $60 million because the difference from Baker Mayfield to Matt Stafford is the difference between losing to the Seahawks by 30 and beating the Seahawks by 17 on the road. I mean, I think it's that simple. And then speaking about quarterbacks, Joe Burrow, he threw for a career worst, I think 82 yards in this game against the Browns. The Browns won 24-3. I'm not going to lie. Deshaun Watson didn't look very good in this game either, especially early. We, we I think you were watching it with me, and pretty much 90% of the throws he was making early in the game were just ground balls to receivers that were pretty much wide open. Um, but he got more use of the rain as the game wore on, and some turnovers by the Bengals helped him out. Um, and in the end, the Browns really hammered the Bengals. I was very, very impressed though, with their defense, especially um, as they won 24-3. Then, same situation in the 49ers-Steelers game. The Niners just came out. McCaffrey was great. Um, Brock Purdy was honestly a little bit better than expected. Actually had the highest QBR of any quarterback in Week 1, which was not something I had on my NFL Week 1 bingo card. Um, But then, Kenny Pickett didn't really look like the new and improved Kenny Pickett that Steelers fans had promised. And instead, the Niners come away with a 30-7 win. Um, And speaking of new and improved versions of quarterbacks, Justin Fields didn't look like the new and improved Justin Fields that everybody expected. But Jordan Love, he did look like a new and improved Jordan Love. I mean, obviously, he didn't really get much of an opportunity as Aaron Rodgers was there, but Jordan Love helped the Packers offense put up 38 points. Um, There are a few metrics who actually have him as the highest-graded quarterback of the weekend, which is honestly another thing that I didn't have on my bingo card was was Brock Purdy and uh, Jordan Love dominating Week 1, but the fact of the matter is that's what they did, and as a result, those two... Uh, really helped their teams just be very impressive, get a big win um, to open up their season. The Packers especially with an impressive win because they weren't supposed to win that game at all. Um, and then finally, there is whatever you want to call the Sunday night football game between the Cowboys and the Giants where I don't think the defense actually scored less touchdowns than the offense. It was basically just sack after sack after sack for Daniel Jones. And then the first drive of the game, it looked hopeful and... The Giants actually drove down the field and were in field goal position, but took a few sacks. And then after they were about to take the lead, the Cowboys blocked the field goal and took it back for a touchdown. And that really set the tone for the night and it didn't get any better. Uh, Daniel Jones then threw a pick six. I mean, I I don't know if they ended up scoring that a pick six or a fumble on Saquon Barkley, but threw the ball to Saquon. It got knocked up in the air. It was caught by a Cowboys player. They took it for a touchdown. Um, just a dominant performance by the Cowboys defense. I still have some things that I'd like to see from Dak Prescott, considering he threw for no touchdowns, but he led the league in interceptions last year, kept the turnovers to a zero, and in the even despite the really bad conditions. Um, so overall, I'm not, I'm not really dissatisfied with everything that happened with the Cowboys this weekend, and instead you have a 40, I mean, obviously you can't be, they won 40 to nothing, but their defense was just so dominant this weekend, and I expect that to continue uh, they forced a lot of turnovers last year. I expect them to continue to do that this season. Okay, and any other notes from around the league you want to share? I do think that the NFC North is the Lions to win. Um, the reason why I say that is because my team preseason, if it wasn't the Lions, would probably be the Bears, just because they made so many improvements and, you know, trusting that Justin Fields would get a lot better, whereas Jordan Love is still kind of adapting to actually getting reps as playing in the game. That didn't look like it on Sunday. I mean, the Packers looked way better than the Bears, especially on the defensive end. The Bears just couldn't really hold anything down. Um, And while Jordan Love did get a lot of help from his receivers, getting a lot of yards after catch, he still looked good, good enough to command that offense. 
good enough to command them to, I mean, because look, they have a good offensive line. They have a great defensive line, a great front seven overall, and they have Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon. So he doesn't need to do it all himself. That's not what they're asking him to do. That's not what he should be doing. Um, And as a result, I think the Packers can be a really strong team this year, but I'm just not convinced that Jordan Love is a division-winning quarterback, whereas we know for a fact that Jared Goff is a division-winning quarterback. He can get you to a Super Bowl. I don't know if he can win you a Super Bowl, but he has done that before. And the Lions, everything that they have together, they have a lot of new weapons, a lot of new players just all around the board. And I just really think that their new-look roster is good enough, especially in a weaker division to just be the better team on paper. And the Vikings losing to the Buccaneers week one also didn't really um, kind of delete any confidence I had in the Lions because, if anything, the Vikings are now moving way down on any power rankings boards, despite the fact they probably weren't too high in the first place for most people. Okay, let's move over to Major League Baseball uh, with our weekly review, starting, as always, in the American League East. The Orioles are atop the AL East, as they have been for a while now, although the Rays have been streaking recently. The Orioles at up to 90 victories on the season. The Rays at 88, um, 88 and 56, just three games behind the Orioles, uh, who are 90 and 52. Then you look behind them, and you have the Toronto Blue Jays, who are 80 and 63, which, frankly, would be easily good enough to be winning uh, the AL Central, and would only put them a few games back. They'd actually be in second place in the AL West, but instead they're 10.5 back of the Orioles. Um, they are 8-2 and two in their last 10. They have won three in a row, looking really good. And if you look in the wild card race, the Blue Jays have now taken over the second wild card spot, actually, only behind the Rays in that wild card battle. Um, and then one game ahead of Seattle, who's currently in the third spot, and we'll talk about how that happened later. Um, but you have the Red Sox at 73-70. and 70. They are 4-6 and six in their last 10, and then you have the Yankees at 71-72, and 72, who had a little bit of a youth movement for a little bit. Jason Dominguez looked pretty good in his first seven games, and they brought up a lot of prospects, but we will see what happens with that in the future, how many of them they actually keep on the roster starting next year. Yeah, maybe they finish above 500, which wasn't looking like it was likely earlier. All right, let's move over to the AL Central. The Twins are in the lead, and this really isn't a battle anymore. The Guardians are now 7.5 back at 68-76. and 76. The Twins at 75-68 and 68 are in the lead, like I said. Then you have the Tigers, who are 66 and 77, somehow magically not eliminated from playoff contention yet, although they are getting pretty, pretty close. Um, and I think it'll actually be the division that keeps them alive for longer. But you do have two teams at the bottom of this division, the White Sox and the Royals. Congratulations, you have been eliminated from playoff contention. And congrats to the Royals. First team to get to 100 losses this year. They actually beat the A's in that race. Very, very surprising. Not a very good thing. Not a very good race to win. Um, but the Royals did win that race, and... I'm not going to say they deserve credit for that because that's not a thing that you get credit for, but they deserve a lot of uh, a lot of slander being thrown their way for that. I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, not a good look. All right, let's move over to the AL West. Well, this one is the very, very interesting division race. Of course, the Astros now, though, have claimed the lead, and all of a sudden it looks like any other year, the Astros, two-and-a-half game lead over the Mariners, who had a really hot month, but now are starting to cool off. The Rangers and the Mariners actually both are 3-7. and seven in their last 10, while the Astros are 6-4. and four. It really didn't take a large streak from the Astros, just consistent good play um, that those other two haven't been able to hang on to. The Rangers have been slowly falling down since their really, really hot start that was sustained for, you know, two months or so. But now it doesn't look so good for them. Um, as a result, you have the Rangers in third. And if you look at the wild card race, it's even worse. The Rangers, half game out. They are behind the Mariners. Um, now, all of a sudden, not even in playoff position, a very, very big fall from grace for the Texas Rangers. 
And then the Angels are also one of those teams that are somehow not eliminated yet. And as I said, the A's did not, in fact, win the race to 100 losses, although they will get there eventually, probably tomorrow, maybe today. Okay, let's move over to the National League, and we will start in the East. Well, you have the first team in the league to clinch a playoff berth. Who do you think it is? It's the Braves. Why not? They are 93-49. and 49. Um, This team is easily going to win 100 games. Might be one of the only teams in the league to win 100 games, frankly, I think. Outside of the Dodgers and the Rays and maybe the Orioles, I think those are kind of the only contenders for 100-win teams. Um, I think every most teams have actually mathematically already been eliminated from that contention. Um, every team, actually, except for the teams I just mentioned, eliminated from that contention. But the Dodgers would, I think, have to go 13-7 and seven at the end of the season to be 162. So the Braves might be one of the few members of the 100-winning club this year. Um, it will definitely be a less stacked club than before. And yet somehow, while they have clinched the playoff berth, they still haven't clinched the division. Their magic number is very, very small, though. Um, the Phillies are 15 back of them at 78 and 64. But the rest of this division is only important in the wild card. I will throw out there that the Mets are one and a half games ahead of the Nationals in five and five in their last 10, whereas the Nationals are two and eight. But what's really important here is that the Phillies are up four games on the Diamondbacks for the number three wildcard spot. They are currently holding the top wildcard spot, um, which would put them in a matchup with the Cubs in the wildcard series, while the Diamondbacks would be in position to play the Brewers, who lead the NL Central, and we'll get to that in a second. But you have the Marlins also in this division, 74 and 69, just a half game back of the Diamondbacks, and they are 8-2 and two in their last 10, so they are hot uh, trying to catch up to the Diamondbacks in the meantime. Okay, let's move over to the NL Central. Well, like I said, the Central race, uh, it, it, it's kind of cooled off a little bit, but the Brewers are three games ahead of the Cubs. The Cubs still could very well come back and win this division, actually. Um, but at 79-63, and 63, though, the Brewers do have the lead for now. Then at 77-67, and 67, it's the Cubs. Um, and at 74-71, and 71, it's the Reds. Uh, both of the teams at the bottom of this division actually had the best record in the last 10 games, 6-4 and four for both the Pirates and the Cardinals, but they're still both way out of playoff contention, so it doesn't really matter. Uh, but in terms of the wildcard race, Cincinnati is now at the bottom of all those teams who were tied before. They're now one and a half games back of the Diamondbacks. Meanwhile, the Cubs are in the second spot, two games ahead of the Diamondbacks for the second wildcard spot, and just two behind the Phillies to actually host that wildcard series, which that would be really interesting. I, I mean... Regardless of who wins that battle, I don't think Philly is going into Chicago and winning that series, and I don't think that Chicago is going into Philly and winning that series. I really do think that is a true example of home court adva- or home field advantage. Excuse me, at its finest, I expect those teams to win um, at home. Wrigley is a very hard place to win a playoff series. It'll be a very fun series. And meanwhile, same thing, Citizens Bank Park, very hard place to win a series too. Um, I would favor the Phillies in terms of who can actually go and win on the road, but I still would predict the Cubs if they were able to make it all the way um, to that series. But look, it'll be a very interesting race. All comes down to the wild card. And maybe even if the Chicago Cubs can put together a strong end of the season, they might actually surpass the Brewers. They still do have two or three weeks or so um, to actually go around and beat the Brewers and take that division title. All right, let's wrap it up and look at the National League West. Well, it's the Dodgers. Uh, they are 87-55, and 55, 13 games ahead of the Diamondbacks. But again, these teams are important in the wild card. Padres are, I think, eight or nine games back. I don't even have them on my little screenshot of the standings that I have handy because they're not relevant in the playoff race whatsoever. Um, but the Giants are one and a half back of the Diamondbacks, who are currently in that third wild card spot. 
It'll be very important how those series play out in the rest of the season. I don't know how many times any of these teams play each other. Of course, there are really, honestly, there are two playoff contenders from each division, which is something very, very interesting. If you actually look at the wildcard standings, it goes NL East, NL Central, NL West, NL East, NL West, NL Central. So there will be teams from each division playing each other that will be fighting for this spot. Um, And divisional games are likely to really, really impact who might make it. I mean, whoever plays the Dodgers latest and sees them resting people, whoever plays the Braves latest and sees them resting players, that'll play a big part in it too. I mean, there are a lot of different factors that can come into this, but the fact of the matter is it'll be a very interesting wildcard race. There are still four teams within one and a half games of that third wildcard spot. And then it does look like I think the Phillies and the Cubs are a little bit above the rest of those teams, that they're going to be above the mix when it's all said and done. Um, But nothing is set in stone yet. And for now, it's still all those six teams kind of fighting for those final few spots. Okay, that wraps up our look at Major League Baseball for the week. It also wraps this edition of the 4th and 24 podcast. Please be sure to check out our next podcast, which will be on Tuesday. We move back to Tuesday, September 19th, where we will once again look back at Patrick's weekend predictions, look at week three of college football, review NFL week two action, and have our weekly review of Major League Baseball. In the meantime, please be sure to check out Patrick's additional content including the 4th and 24 college football poll that is posted every Monday, Patrick's Major League League Baseball power rankings that are updated every Wednesday, Patrick's picks for next weekend's games that will be posted, as always, on Thursday, and his picks for the entire college football season uh, have been posted. You can check and see out what Patrick's been doing after the first few weeks. All that content is on our website, 4thand24.com. That's the number for T-H-A-N-D, the number 24.com. Thank you for listening.